2: Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show. We've started on time. Come on, that's impressive. We've had a few delays as of late. We did. We were speaking to, for example, people in Ukraine uh, and juggling things. We're tricky sometimes, but this time we are very, very prompt. We've got quite the show today. We are talking about the latest developments in, I suppose, what could be loosely described as the Epstein saga. One of Jeffrey Epstein's uh, associates has been found uh, dead in a prison much of course, like Jeffrey Epstein himself. This is Jean-Luc Brunel. Now, I'm sorry, generally sticks to Occam's razor, which is the simplest explanation, is normally the likeliest. I don't normally I don't indulge tinfoil uh hattery, if you like. Uh I don't think the moon landings were faked, etc. Various people, and I'll just bring up an example. Uh this is Nerze Afzal. Uh, who is a former CPS prosecutor. Who's uh, written, john Link Brunel has, in quotes, scare quotes, committed suicide. He was accused of procuring young girls for Jeffrey Epstein to abuse. Friends of Ghislaine Maxwell and named by Virginia G. Frey as one of her abusers. He was awaiting trial in France for sexual abuse. I'm no conspiracy theory, but dot, dot. Now, we don't, I mean, we're speculating and maybe that's not that productive. What we do know is, once again, someone who was accused of heinous heinous crimes, we're talking about the sexual abuse of girls, has escaped justice and will not be on trial for those allegations, including supplying trafficking girls for Epstein and his associates, as well as allegations of rape. Now, we want to talk about the specifics of the latest developments, not least, of course, Prince Andrew's settlement. What does that mean? What does the settlement mean? What does it mean in terms of Prince Andrew? But obviously, we want to talk about the wider issues. And that is, of course, male violence against girls and women, the issues of child sex abuse, of trafficking. These are very, very important issues. And I'll bring in very shortly to, we couldn't have better guests to talk about this specific saga but also those wider issues which we do need to talk about in a non-sensationalist way. Um, Before I do that, thank you as ever for those who are watching live. Do click on the YouTube link if you're watching it and press subscribe and press like. Good for the algorithm. Just, you know, it gets more people to watch it later on in the day or week. Uh, You can also listen to us, of course, on the podcast. Do download. Leave us uh, a rating if you're feeling well disposed. Uh, we have another documentary coming out this week. Uh, I went to Coventry, where bin workers are on strike. There's a, a wider significance to this struggle because the general secretary of Unite, Sharon Graham, who we speak to in the documentary, uh, has uh, has suggested that Unite could pull funding over Labour over this. So this is a kind of this this dispute has much wider significance. Uh, they're on strike actually against the Labour Council not the Tory Council so what we've done is interviewed the bin workers who are on strike uh, but we're putting it in a wider context I think it's a really compelling documentary we make these documentaries because of your support on patreon.com forward slash 84 do support us if you can you can also support the channel uh, using Super Chat where you can put uh, uh, questions to the guests uh, the producer will kill me at the end if I do not read out everyone who has supported us on super chat i will not forget this time because i have in the past um uh, i can barely keep myself together as you can see so i will we will uh talk obviously in depth about uh these issues so i'm going to bring in now our two fantastic guests who are very very lucky to have uh we have lucia osborne crary who is a brilliant journalist and dr charlotte proudman a fantastic barrister we're so lucky to have you both how are you both doing
0: yeah, really good. Thank you. Great to be here.
2: It's, it's so to be- good
3: to be here, Owen. Thank you so much for having us.
2: No, I'm I'm hugely, hugely, hugely honoured. Now, I suppose let's just start with this issue of Jean-Luc Brunel, who, as we've said, has been found hanged in his prison cell. Um, the family of Gislay Maxwell are saying that they fear for her safety. Now, again, speculation is probably a waste of time, but just tell both of you, What's your reaction to this news? And tell us a bit about Jean-Luc Brunel. Who wants to start?
0: Don't mind. Um... Go for it. it. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, I was really disappointed to see that he has committed suicide and, more importantly, that he won't stand trial for alleged rape. Um, Virginia Jeffrey came forward and said that he raped her whilst she was a child. And looking at his history... Um, He seems to have had an extensive friendship with Epstein um, to the extent that he supposedly fronted a modelling agency with Epstein and used that front to sex traffic young girls and teenagers for Epstein to allegedly use um, to allegedly rape and sexually assault and abuse over the years, and he was very much complicit in that. And Virginia Jeffrey was one of the um, alleged victims. So now he won't stand trial. There'll be no justice yet again for Virginia Jeffrey, uh, and, and potentially other victims as well.
2: Lucia, what's your what's your take? And tell us a bit if you know you know a bit about Jean-Luc Brunel, what he was accused of.
3: Yeah, so I completely agree with both of you, and I think what you were saying, Owen, in your introduction, um, is exactly right. And this is the thing that you know can get so lost in these discussions because so much of this can get sensationalized. You know, we don't know exactly what happened here; it's very suspicious. But what we do know is that yet again uh these victims you know the system has failed these victims um because another alleged perpetrator will not face trial and and will not you know continue to face justice so you know we don't know exactly what happened in Jeffrey Epstein's cell the night he died we don't know exactly what happened on Saturday night um when Jean-Luc Brunel died but what we do know is that this is another failure um And that uh these victims- this is just you know another story in which these victims um don't get justice, and which these um perpetrators don't have to face their accusers and face justice and I think that's so disappointing, regardless of what actually happened mm. um so you know I think it's really important to stay focused on that and stay focused on the victims and and how disappointing this is for them and you know, Virginia put out a statement quite soon after. Jean-Luc Brunel's death was announced and you know you just can't even imagine how heartbreaking this must be for her um, to have these people continue to evade justice. So, onto your question about who Jean Luc Brunel was, we heard so I was at the um, Ghislaine Maxwell trial uh, in December and we heard a lot about him in this trial. Um, we, heard, we saw and heard evidence that Jean Luc Brunel was on Jeffrey Epstein's plane a lot. We heard about him from victims. So, he was a very, very close friend of Jeffrey Epstein um, and he's been accused of delivering up. More than a thousand girls uh, in what Glenn Maxwell's prosecutors described as a sexual abuse pyramid scheme, preying on um, minor girls. So he had the evidence that we saw uh, suggested that he had a really pivotal pivotal role um, in all of this, um, and he he's one of the only other people who has been arrested, and and now you know we will see again that he gets to evade justice. So it really is very disappointing.
0: Jean Luc Brunel was also known as the ghost, apparently, and um, that the French police named him the ghost because he would just evade uh, investigation, evade prosecution. So he'd been on their radar for years, and there'd been an investigation into him in the 90s because of alleged sex trafficking, and he'd managed to so called get away with it in inverted commas. And yet again, he hasn't been brought to
2: justice. We've got a clip shortly of Virginia from an earlier interview, but just as a way in to talk about the Prince Andrew settlement, I thought this was quite an extraordinary clip. It's just just a way of bringing it in. This was Nicholas Witchell, the BBC Royal Correspondent. What of Andrew's future? Could there possibly be a route back to a public role? I have to say it's hard right now. To see one, he's been shown uh, to have had such poor judgement, such poor choice of friends. And the brutal fact is, would anyone actually want him? Would any charities, any regiments and so on want to be associated with him after all of this, for all that there's no admission of liability? Perhaps the answer is, as he says at the end of this statement, for him, as he says, to pledge to support the fight against the evils of sex trafficking and by supporting its victims. Perhaps that offers the the best, perhaps even the only route back for him. Okay. I mean the first bit was fine the first bit was fine that last bit I think was let's just say problematic the idea that he could reinvent himself as a campaigner against trafficking what's your just firstly your both your responses to the settlement itself what does the settlement st- signify do you want to start Lucy this time
3: yeah so again you know this is such a Such a complex issue, and um, you know, I think it requires some kind of really deep analysis because there's so much going on here. You know, a lot of people's instant reaction was, you know, this is a financial settlement, and he's gotten away with it um, just by forking over 12 million pounds. And there's a lot of discussion about you know him avoiding jail by by handing over the money and i think it's important to just remember that this was always a civil case um even if this went to a jury trial the outcome would would most likely be monetary damages this this was never a criminal trial so the idea of him avoiding jail time through this settlement alone is not quite right and i think it's it is important to remember because you know i feel that there's been a lot of um victim blaming flying around a lot of people saying that Virginia Jeffrey shouldn't have accepted this settlement and that she should have forced him to go to trial um, uh, in order to to hold him accountable. and And I think it's really important to resist that narrative because, you know, again, the money would have always been the outcome in this situation because it is a civil case. Um and also, I think, you know this settlement is is really unusual and and quite significant. and and she, Got some amazing wins in this negotiation. The fact that he, he, he—I haven't seen the settlement myself, and I don't have sources who've seen it—but the Telegraph has reported that that he can, as part of the settlement, he can never again deny that he raped Virginia Dufresne. I mean, that is really huge, and also that he, um, you know, he was forced to admit publicly that he regrets. His friendship with Jeffrey Epstein. And in that public statement, it says that Epstein trafficked, quote, countless girls. And that legal language, you know, there is nothing accidental about that. The word countless is really significant. To me, it signifies that Virginia wanted something in that public statement that says, this story is not over. More people can come forward. You know, countless means we don't know how many people are out there, we don't know how many victims there are. And that word to me felt really significant to have that in a legal document because I think that kind of encourages people to come forward. So I think there are so many things mm-hmm. about this settlement that are kind of huge wins for survivors and and really significant to get, you know, that the statement that came along with this was not an admission of guilt, but but it's also not the kind of complete silence that you usually get with mm-hmm. out of court settlements. So I just think there's a lot to kind of to kind of analyze.
2: I mean, Charlotte, we've actually got here, this is Liz Stein, who's a, one of the survivors. Let's just hear from Liz and just be interested to hear your response, Charlotte, to that as well. I think
1: this shows that his decisions have consequences. He lost his royal and his military titles and his duties, his public association with his family, and he went from royalty to a private citizen practically overnight. Uh, he was publicly disgraced but he'll still have a better life than anyone could dream of. And whatever he lost as a result of this could never compare to what the victims of Epstein, Maxwell and the men that we were trafficked to have lost from our lives. There's no amount of money that could compensate for that. Um, And I think that in negotiating her settlement, Virginia was uh, very wise in going after things that are much more important than money.
2: Charlotte, what's your, what's your thoughts just responding to that?
0: I think the the more I think about the settlement, the more infuriated I feel, and I can feel my blood boiling um, as we're talking about this, and that's because effectively what Prince Andrew has done is bought his innocence. He's paid, it's reported to be, about £12 million. Pounds, um, apparently. Uh, We have no idea where that money is even coming from. He hasn't admitted fault at all. He hasn't apologised to her. He hasn't apologised for being friends with Epstein. He said, I regret being friends. He hasn't apologised for victim blaming her for so-called apparently trying to get hold of her. Uh, mental health record, shaming her for a so-called sexual history, referring to her in really lurid, uh, victim-blaming terms. And he hasn't admitted the fact that he did, um, as she said, rape her. And my concern is that we must remember that Virginia Jeffray went initially to the Metropolitan Police on a number of occasions. And she wanted, as it seemed, an investigation into him by the police. She also wanted a prosecution. And what's happening more and more is that the police, and the police as part of the state, have a duty to prosecute, prevent, and end male violence against women and girls. And they're failing to do that. They are wholly failing to do that. When there's only around 1,000 convictions for rape every single year, that for me is a decriminalisation of rape. So what happens when the police fail to hold men especially powerful men like Prince Andrew to account. What it means is that the only option available to them is civil claims that I see through the civil courts, where you end up with two private citizens because the state have failed them, uh, arguing over potentially money and damages. But that's not the only significance. You see, here, had it have gone to a civil trial, whether in front of a judge or a jury, you could have ended up with findings that Prince Andrew had of rape, Virginia, Jeffrey, that's right. You could have ended up with findings of that. Even if it were on the balance of probability, only 51%, more likely than not, still, that would have had huge significance. And often, it does have massive significance for victims, because that's what they want. They want often a finding of that. They want some recognition of liability and wrongdoing so that then they can move on. With Virginia Jeffrey, it appears that was very different. And therefore, I welcome this settlement for her, which she has accepted. This is not about victim blaming. I'm very pleased for her and I hope that she finds peace and justice and can move on. My concern is the wider implications for other victims and that the criminal justice system is failing them. The left with the civil justice system and jam- damages is wholly insignificant and insu- in insufficient the amount of harm that's been inflicted on them by alleged perpetrators and found perpetrators. And we're seeing this a lot more as well in footballer cases, especially.
2: Let's just hear then from Virginia talking in an interview about this, just to, to, just to put those experiences front and centre, let's hear what she said.
1: How did you learn that you were going to be trafficked to him? I, you know, was woken up by Guillen in the morning and told I was going to meet a prince. And up till then, I didn't even,
0: I should have known, but I didn't even know that I was going to be trafficked that night to him. And um, we went shopping and and Prince Andrew came over and then we went to Club Tramp and he danced with me. And he's, he's a horrific dancer, by the way. And he sweats a lot and he smells funny. Um, and then and then we get in the car and Andrew's not in the car with us, he's in the car behind us with his security guards. And um Gilan tells me in the car that I have to do what I do for Jeffrey
1: for Prince Andrew.
0: And that's when I learned what was going to happen.
2: I mean, Lisa, yeah, the the, I think it's worth just unpacking the amount of courage it actually takes to be in that position. I mean, we're talking about a, royal, a member of the royal family, or erstwhile. Just talk through, that like, actually the courage it takes, because we've seen, and Charlotte's already referred to victim blaming in in mainstream, in, 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 in other cases, you know, where it doesn't involve a member of the royal family. But we're talking here about a member of the royal family, well-connected, sympathetic media outlets. That's a lot. Mm-hmm.
3: It is. And, you know, this has been such a long and difficult fight for Virginia. And I think, you know, to for her to have even gotten to this point where, you know, she kept fighting and she kept fighting, um, you know, to get to a point where he is forced to say that, you know, he will never again deny that he raped her. Um, and, you know, for her to get to an agreement that that she is happy with, I think is is really really significant because you know the toll that this takes on victims is is unbelievable and you know I think the other thing is that um, and she has spoken a bit about this in the past is also if she wanted to avoid a civil trial in which she had to testify um, and which in which other victims had to testify that's also her right you know you know if if she did if her thinking was that she didn't want this to go to trial because she didn't want to be put through that. Um, she's entitled to make that decision. Um, and so, you know, I think the point about courage is, is a really important one, because the kind of re-traumatising toll that this takes on victims of abuse, that, that every every step of the justice system takes on victims of abuse is really, really massive. And I think, but the other thing I think is really important to say is that I completely agree with Charlotte in that, you know, these these cases shouldn't be in civil court. This, this, sh- this shouldn't have been a civil case. This is absolutely 100% the state failing to take these crimes seriously. We've seen it again and again and again. It's the same reason that Jean-Luc Brunel is no longer with us. It's the same reason that Jeffrey Epstein is no longer with us. You know, it just, we keep seeing, you know, the, the thread that goes through all of this is that the state, the government and the police just do not care enough about these kinds of crimes. That's why Virginia had to pursue Prince Andrew in civil court. That's why, you know, this was always going to be about a monetary settlement. And that's completely unacceptable. You know, it's just, it's just another example of our police forces just not doing their jobs.
2: I mean, I mean, Charlotte, you referred before to, and and this is many campaigners made this point about the the effect of decriminalization of rape, that we have 85 to 90,000 women every year raped by men and a tiny, tiny proportion end up with any uh, legal consequences. I mean, just, you know, in terms of just unpacking a bit what you said and going through, are we becoming like the US basically, where it's private citizens who are forced to litigate rape? And and also just say a bit more about the impact that this victim blaming has, not just in this case, but in, in other cases as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I do think that we are moving more towards a US style system where it's effectively left to private individuals to litigate cases of rape or sexual abuse or assault because the police have wholly failed to properly investigate. There's no prosecution. As I've said before, there is a duty on the state to end male violence. There's a duty on them to investigate, It's a duty on them to properly prosecute, and they are failing every step of the way. And in this country, misogyny is ingrained, it's systemic, it's institutionalized in the police force. So no wonder it's hardly being investigated, let alone prosecuted. And then we have to look at the way in which these cases are prosecuted, or the way in which civil trials happen, Uh, When uh, victims bring those claims forward and seek damages or findings of rape, the whole process is incredibly, it's it's re-abusive, it's re-traumatizing, and victim-blaming myths are part of the entire process, as indeed are victim-blaming tropes. And in fact, there's been a a huge amount of research done where victims have said they felt worse after the trial, in some cases, than the rape itself. Now, if that is right, and that is happening frequently, we are faced in our justice system that is not justice that's injustice and it might be a fair system for perpetrators to peddle victim blaming Miss, but it's certainly not a fair system for victims and for complainants because what it does is discourage them from coming forward so I wouldn't be surprised if Virginia Jeffrey and other victims would not want to go through that system would not want to and I'm going to use a really colloquial expression here but to air their dirty laundry in public because that's exactly what it is but it's not just their dirty laundry it's air Sharing their trauma. And what it allows is, in this case, Prince Andrew to try and pull out her mental health records to gaslight her, to effectively say that you're not telling the truth, you're not credible, your memory is not correct. Your memory is not correct, for goodness sake. Saying that your version of reality, your experiences, your lived reality is false. I mean, yeah. how abusive and re-traumatising is that? Not only do they peddle those myths in the media, in the courts, they then bring out so-called memory experts to say that they're misremembering things as if they're children, they're infantilizing them. But notably, we don't do this with perpetrators, do we? We don't say to perpetrators in court, you're misremembering, your memory is false. No, we only victim blame victims. Perpetrators, on the other hand, we don't we don't call up their... Sexual history. Don't look at how many women that they've apparently raped or sexually assaulted. It's the emphasis and the onus is always on victims.
2: It's striking that I won't name them because they're just so gruesome. But one one of Prince Andrew's friends suggested that the photograph of him with Virginia was made up, that body double. I mean, these are sort of kind of just awful, awful gaslighting of someone who's. Who's come forward I mean Lucy what do you think about the fact that in this settlement though that Virginia is a set, essentially has to be silenced until after the Queen's class in just yeah see what you think about that
3: yeah I mean that part of it is so it's so devastating and you know I wish I mean that just every single thing about this story just just shows us how broken this system is when it comes to Um, violence against women and girls writ large and you know these kind of crimes in particular because you know this the the fact that you know she has to stay quiet while the queen has a party um, is is revolting you know it makes me feel ill um I hate that that she had to make that concession and that again that she's even in a negotiating room with a member of the royal family instead of in a criminal setting um, where, you know, the thing is, the more I think about kind of all these people I've seen attacking her for take, taking this settlement, it, it kind of, it implies that it, it is on her to kind of bring justice for everyone, for every survivor of this story. And that just shows you, again, how big of a failing it is that this is in civil court where, as Charlotte said, it's private individuals, it's her as a private person bringing this suit, rather than the state with all its power that it could be using to protect victims. Um, instead, it's leaving them out on their own to bring these suits and, and then to be put in a position where she has to accept, you know, a gagging order while the while the Queen celebrates a Jubilee. And, like, you know, if there's anything that speaks more broadly to the kind of... <laughs> awful state of the society we live in. It's got to be that, you know, that here in the UK, the Queen's going to have a big party and all of these, you know, the the media's going to cover it every day and everyone's going to go out and celebrate her. And the cost of that, you know, the, that relies on this idea that Virginia has to be quiet for that time. And it's just, it's revolting.
2: Before I ask just finally about the just again wider issues with this with Epstein, so he's dead, his close associate is dead. Where do we go from here in terms of justice? Because so much of this remains completely shrouded in the darkness in terms of the associates of Epstein, the people who these girls were trafficked to. We don't know really publicly the full story or anywhere near it. So Charlotte, what what do you think happens next? I mean, what hope is there ever of genuine justice and the truth?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question. It's one that I was thinking about actually, Um, just yesterday. I was thinking about, you know, how many more victims are there? How many more perpetrators are there? How many more famous, powerful, rich people need to be held to account? How many people that we don't know who they actually are, we haven't heard their names, we haven't seen their faces. Are they going to start coming out of the woodworks? Are people going to start identifying them? You know, is at some point the police or the FBI or whomever going to actually pull up and look at these different rings because it seems like it's a pattern of perpetrators and they're very much working together in sex trafficking girls teenagers um, for men's benefit and ultimately to rape and abuse them Uh, are we going to start learning who was within these networks and are victims willing and that's a huge ask um, to come forward to seek a prosecution um, and, 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 and the other thing to remember is, if they're not seeking a prosecution, and perhaps the police wouldn't even properly investigate because we have seen the fails of v- Virginia Jeffrey against Prince Andrew, would that mean that they'd have to bring a civil claim? And if you bring a civil claim, you're not anonymous, so you don't have the benefit then of not being named, whereas we saw in the Maxwell trial that some of those victims were not named, their identities were concealed, and that's the benefit of the state bringing the case on your behalf. I I think that this won't be the last that we hear of this case. I think that there potentially will be many more uh, attempts to bring them to justice and potentially will, uh, particularly if Virginia Jeffrey has anything to do with it. I think she's a remarkable woman. And I I, I, honestly, I I think she's so courageous, so very brave. And I'm really proud of the success in bringing this case forward and winning.
2: What do you think, Lucia, in terms of what, what happens next?
3: Well, I think this is one of those things where it is so important at this point that we all keep going. You know, everyone, you know, people like Charlotte who are, you know, working in law on these issues and journalists who are reporting on these issues. You know, this, the people, the other people in this story, the other perpetrators in this story who have not yet been arrested are counting on the fact that people will get bored and look away. these kinds of issues and I think um, now you know when Ghislaine has just been convicted we've just had this news about Jean-Luc Brunel we have you know I was approached by a victim yesterday who had never come forward before you know we have to keep the pressure on and we have to keep going and keep digging around and until we find out exactly how many people were involved in this exactly what happened and you know bring those people to justice because I think you know it's just one of those things where a lot of people are relying on this going away at some point. And uh, these victims are so tireless in their search for justice, they're not going to give up. And I think the people around them who are kind of investigating this and working on this need to really step up now and say, you know, I'm not giving up on this story until, until we know exactly what happened and we know exactly who was involved and that those people have been held accountable.
2: Just, just finally, I mean, Charlotte, you've referred to this earlier as well, just the, terror, the the ingraining of misogyny within the justice system, the legal system. We know that Channel 4, for example, have done investigative work about domestic violence by police officers, as well as, uh, including as well, sexual assault, rape, um, and many, all too many police officers have been allowed to continue as police officers after committing those acts of violence against girls and women. So we know how ingrained misogyny is. Obviously, we have the Sarah Everard horror by a male police officer, um, and then the vigil, of course, being attacked by metropolitan police officers. So Charlotte, what, if anything can come out of this, what do you think the demands are? What, ha- what, what needs to be fought for now to transform a legal and justice system, which is just absolutely riddled with misogyny?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 basically on its knees where women don't have confidence, in my view, in coming forward and reporting rape, uh, sexual assault, or even domestic abuse. I mean, the police are just totally failing. I mean, when I go through police records myself in domestic abuse or rape cases, and I see the kind of, frankly, crap that they come out with, like... Um, it's a non-crime domestic. I mean, what the hell is that, a non-crime domestic? Because it's in a domestic abuse in a domestic setting, it's therefore not a criminal offence. So they minimise demean it. Police officers are struggling when I've cross-examined them um, to explain even what domestic abuse is, let alone what the key indicators or the key themes are or what the things are to look out for. So how do we change this? I think we need uh, someone to replace Crusader. Uh, Dick, who is experienced in domestic abuse, who champions victims, Uh, someone trained in that field specifically, and someone who's going to take a zero tolerance approach to misogyny, racism, homophobia, other forms of discrimination within the police force, because it's definitely riddled with it. Uh, We also need proper training for police officers, and we need proper vetting for them. I mean, Wayne Cousins, for example, it was reported that he was involved in flashing. He was a perpetrator of flashing, and apparently the police failed to properly investigate that. What is going on? And also the fact that he was known as the rapist, and that He was involved in WhatsApp chats. Uh, which was apparently also riddled with misogyny, racism and other forms of abuse. Why wasn't that picked up on? Why wasn't that called out? And then we need better protection for whistleblowers within the police force as well. So I think it's a huge amount that needs to be done. But most importantly, you need someone that actually acknowledges that this is a, an institutional problem and a cultural issue. That doesn't mean that all police officers are involved in this. There are some absolutely brilliant ones, including at the top in senior ranks, but that needs to filter down. And we need to see that domestic abuse is seen in my view this is the biggest issue as harmful to the social fabric of our society as terrorism because that's what it is it's terrorism on an epidemic scale and a mass proportion but within women's homes.
2: Absolutely and Lucia finally what, what, what's your thoughts on that?
3: Well I just I mean you would have seen me just furiously nodding then I completely completely agree with Charlotte it's you know, this is an epidemic and, and it is as harmful as terrorism and we are not even close to, to being a society that acknowledges that. And I do think we're at, I think this is an important moment. You know, think reflecting on last week the charges placed against the Met officers who were in that WhatsApp chat with, with Wayne Cousins and, and the things that were said in that chat just tells you everything we need to know about why these crimes aren't being taken seriously by the police because there are members of the police force who are perpetrators or or who are joking about being perpetrators with their friends you know and that you know it just shows that everything needs to change um i think the the point charlotte's point about changing the culture of the police um i think that's absolutely crucial um because this is you know, at the centre of it, that story about having a police officer who couldn't on cross examination, um, talk clearly about what domestic abuse is, you know, that is absolutely devastating from the from the perspective of anyone who wants this to change. So, um, you know, I think, I think we're in a moment where it's possible to, to kind of move the needle forward. And so I think pushing on all of those different aspects, reforming the police, getting the police to take this more seriously, changing the narrative around victim blaming in society more gen- generally and kind of keeping up, trying to expose the truth of these things, because we're so committed at the moment as a society to look away from this. And that's why it's allowed to, you know, that's why it's grown to epidemic proportions.
2: Lucy and Charlotte, we've been so honoured to have you both. Just so clear, lucid, really gone into the weeds and just, as, we've, as, as you've done so brilliantly, looked at the, the far wider issues, uh, because this isn't a so-called royal scandal. This is obviously about male violence against girls and women uh, from the very top of society to the very bottom. And you've both so clearly articulated that and the demands going forward from this horror. And I'm glad as well we've, we've spoken about the courage of Virginia. It must have been a horrific. Ordeal for her to go through, and there's no obviously responsibility for her to to, to respond in any way, but in any right or wrong way. But it, it, it's it, it, to have the media, his allies, the royal family, briefings against her gruesome that she's done this. She has got something at least, which I think you've you, you've unpicked both so brilliantly. Thank you so much to both of you. If you're uh, whether you're watching live or listening. Do follow both of them. Let me just make sure I get you, get your handles right. Lucia is Lucia OC underscore on Twitter, and Charlotte is Dr. Proudman on Twitter as well. Do follow them. Um, and I'm sure you will read their commentary on this and so many other crucial issues in the coming weeks. Thank you so much to both of you. Take care. And uh, it was an honor. Thank,
0: Thank you,
2: both you. Thank you so much, both. Thank you. Thank you. Um, brilliant stuff. We're so lucky to have guests who can just so clearly and plainly explain very, very complicated uh, issues. And I'm glad we didn't, you know, it's important not to sensationalise this kind of issue um, and to talk about those wider the wider issue of male violence against girls and women. We've been very lucky to have a range of brilliant uh, uh, speakers on the nature of the police force. Of course, we had a former police officer, Kevin Maxwell, who detailed the homophobia and racism that he endured in the Metropolitan Police Force. So do look that up. Uh, We interviewed him, of course, um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, Just finally, we had a comment there from David Baratta about the Metropolitan Police. This was, should it, does it need to be, here we are, do you think the Met can be actually fixed or should the institution be torn down and replaced? I found this interesting because the first column I ever wrote for The Guardian back in 2014 was calling for the abolition of the Metropolitan Police. And I think it is important. We did a, a whole show of course on the litany of scandals within the metropolitan police at the time uh and i think this is all too relevant i'd been interviewing many women who'd had relationship with undercover police officers these are police officers who adopted entirely new identities um had relationships often moved in with those women for years one of them had a child one of those women said it was like being raped by the state um and we don't know. We don't. We. I mean, we still don't know how extensive those undercover police operations uh, were. Uh, but that was, you know, those women courageously fought for so long. But we, you know, we could go through the racism, the pandemic racism within the police force. Recently, of course, uh, with Stephen Port, the so-called grinder killer, the killings of young gay men, which the families of the victims have quite rightly spoken about as in terms of the police responses, institutional uh, homophobia. We've obviously gone through just some of the misogyny within the police force. Now, whatever we think in terms of how we transform the police, uh, or, or sorry, our approach to the policing in general, I think there's brilliant work being done on, on how, if you like, the frontiers of policing can be rolled back. In a sense that having a police force, which is a kind of one-size-fits-all uh, to a whole range of different issues, whether it be, I don't know, uh, having your phone, Nick to, uh, male violence, domestic abuse within the home, uh, to dealing with racist attacks in the streets, you know, the idea that there's just, you know, one police for one institution, uh, which is supposed to deal with these disparate issues, notwithstanding the systemic and institutional racism, homophobia, misogyny. Uh, within those police forces i think there's that that you know the defund the police movement often got caricatured but what it was arguing for in the the us for example is that funding instead of dealing with you like with the symptoms of a broken society uh where you kind of play whack-a-mole and often quite a brutal way with policing you actually use resources to deal with the underlying injustices before those problems actually arise in the first place I think that's still a discussion that people can have. It's it's often been shut down and sensationalised, but I think it's an important discussion. In terms of the Metropolitan Police though, I think it's a broken system, a completely, irredeemably broken and whatever our view on policing and, and how we transform uh, at the justice system, personally, I think that whole police force needs to be abolished and replaced with something else because it's rotten from the very top to the very bottom um, and I think has quite correctly lost the confidence of millions of Londoners. Um, And and I think, you know, it's, this is why the danger is, the focus on Cressida Dick is very problematic because we're dealing with systemic issues here. I mean, that was the point Charlotte was making before, of course, the good police officers and people who become police officers for the right reasons. The issue is, the nature of the system itself—it's a systemic issue. So even if you have well-intentioned people within a broken system, you still have a fundamentally broken system. Um, and in fact, that's a point here. Tad makes Tad Cantwell. It's hard to see how the Met can be separated from Westminster power structures without a large political change. And that's the other thing. You know, I, I find this interesting because I actually studied my university uh, dissertation was on um, the police strikes of 1918, 1919. When the police, the, the Met went on strike wholesale in twenty eight uh, in nineteen eighteen. At the time, the state made uh, the unfortunate mistake of not paying police officers a high salary. In fact, many of them were paid less than unskilled workers. Many of them were hungry, doing second jobs. So they went on strike, and that terrified the state because you had a wave of strikes and army mutinies going on. So they thought that would be that pre saged a revolution because if you lose your arm, you know, the arm of law and order during a period of huge revolutionary unrest then what's to stop that revolutionary arrest taking over the country? So what they did is they crushed the police trade union and replaced it with the what we now know as the Police Federation, of course. Um, and they paid the, the police very highly after that. Um, uh, Margaret Thatcher may have caught uh, the real terms pay of many public sector workers, but she gave the police a massive pay increase, of course, when she came uh, to power. Uh, more recently, the Conservatives haven't actually stuck by that general strategy uh and you've seen obviously attacks on to be fair the pay and pensions of 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 the police but even though the british model of policing is often extolled compared to the continent where you having a, a, a centralized police force and this is supposed to be policing by consent and devolved police forces which are separate from the state obviously that's not really the case with the Metropolitan Police, uh, you know, the Home Secretary appoints the commissioner, etc. Uh, well, in theory, it's the Queen, but it's the Home Secretary in practice. So, you know, you can't actually disentangle them there, and many of its functions are essentially its operating as an organ of the central state, uh, which is unlike other police officers, uh, police services across the country. So I think it's a really important point that Tad makes. Right, that is enough for me. Um, we are I'm gonna go off actually to finish our documentary, which we have be making um on. And and this is, I think, very important because trade unions are the biggest democratic movement of the country. They represent millions of people and they're all too rarely discussed within the media, including workers who we've got cost of living crisis. We do talk about that a lot in media to a degree, Um, but you've got workers uh, there who are actually doing something about the cost of living crisis they're fighting for better wages unfortunately their employee as it turns out is a Labour council um, and just going uh, what I've done in the film is I've interviewed the leader of the council uh, the HTV drivers themselves and the General Secretary of the Unite because this has become a national flashpoint between the Labour party and its biggest funder uh, which is unite which is threatening to pull money from the Labour Party, and not least over this particular dispute. So there's a lot of wider issues which we've uh, uh, we're looking at and that's thanks to your support on patreon.com forward slash owenjones 84 Uh so thank you everybody today for uh, for for tuning in. Um do press like on YouTube or on Facebook if you're watching it there. Uh press subscribe and uh I am finishing my book <laughs> nearly there. When that is done we can do far more videos and interviews, uh, which we've got lots lined up. That's enough for me. Over to the documentary. Uh, That will be out on Wednesday, I think, uh, and we'll be live again next Sunday at 12 o'clock. Thanks again to the guests. Thanks for everyone tuning in. Lots of love. Take care, everyone. thanks for listening everyone i hope you found that informative educational uh, interesting and isolated uh do support us on patreon to keep the show on the road uh forward slash orange Jones 84 leave us some stars that'd be nice spread the word and i look forward to speaking to you soon